Good morning again. All right, you guys, I know it's kind of like a sleepy morning this morning, but this is exciting. We get to go back into our Revive This City message series. If you'd like to turn in your Bible, we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'd like to invite you to turn there. Uh, the past two weeks, of course, I was gone being out with my wife and, and little baby Oakley. She's doing wonderful. Thank you for your prayers and, and for asking about her. Um, we have decided to keep her out of church for a couple more weeks just for health concerns, both for her and mom. But I really appreciate Brother Tim being in here the past couple weeks. I've heard outstanding things about him. If you've got something you want to tell me or say he did good or you didn't like that, I would love to hear your opinions on him. We may invite him back, so I need to know what you think. But I'm excited to be back in Nehemiah and back on track of what we were talking about. If you remember, we've started this book of Nehemiah, and it's about this man who was given a mission by God. He hears about the city of Jerusalem is unprotected from invaders. It's unprotected from people trying to come in and tear down the temple and, and just continually being attacked. And, and God put it on his heart that he is to go to Jerusalem and lead the effort to rebuild the walls around the city, to revive the city. And he had this one man mission. Now, as we've been looking at this, we've been asking ourselves, what does it look like for us to have a one church mission? What is our mission when it comes to reviving the city around us? What is our mission when it comes to what has God laid on our heart, just like he laid on Nehemiah's heart, the need for walls around the city? Up to this point, we've seen Nehemiah travel to the city. He, he builds this coalition by inviting people to come work with him, um, and, and they start building the walls, and immediately he meets opposition. People trying to tear down the walls. Nehemiah survives death threats. Nehemiah survives nearly going to war, armed conflict. It gets so intense that before the walls are finished that he has workers standing working, and the other half of his workers standing with um, uh, weapons to protect them. We found out a few weeks ago, though, that the mission was completed. He, he did get the walls completed, but that was just up to chapter 7, and Nehemiah has 13 chapters. Well, if the book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah building the walls, why does the story continue past this? It's because the story was never about building the walls. It's about God's glory shining in the city of Jerusalem. And for us, we have a mission that we want to go out into our community and we want to tell people about the wonderful, brilliant light of Jesus Christ. We want to tell them about the hardships they're having and how Christ can handle that. We want to tell them about the difference between heaven and hell. We want to tell them what a special thing it is to know the Lord. But once we do that, and once we have victory in that, we still have work to do, just like Nehemiah didn't, finish, didn't stop working just because he finished the walls. If you'll read with me in chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Please keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to this. Uh, we're just going to read the first eight verses to start off with. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood upon the pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Masiah on his right hand and on his left hand, Padiah and Mishael and Malachiah and Hashem and Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshalem. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting of their hands and bowing their heads, and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua and Banna and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and Shabetiah and Hod. I was doing really good there for a second, guys. I was on a roll. Okay. Hodijah and Messiah and Kalida and Azariah and Josabad and Hanan and Peleah and the Levites caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. We have take home truths every week and we'll have three this week as well. Take home truth number one is that victory should bring devotion to God. Brother Danny, you didn't know we were going to talk about victory in Jesus this morning, did you? He picked that song without knowing this is where we're going. I heard that first tune of that and I thought, I can't believe it. I almost asked him to sing that. Victory should cause devotion to God. When we have victory in our mission, it should not be a cause to stop it should be a cost to be devoted more. Picture with me with this. The walls are built. The gates are hung. The guards have been posted around Jerusalem. Nehemiah could have said, I've done what God called me to do. But now he takes on the next step. The next step is now it is time to teach the people about God. So you have all of the people of Jerusalem gathering out um, in a crowd, getting ready to hear the Bible being taught, and they call on Ezra to come do this for them. Now, Ezra, we don't have a lot of time to get into Ezra right now. The book uh, immediately before the book of Nehemiah is the book of Ezra. It's the same man. Ezra was the first priest to lead people back to Jerusalem to start to inhabit this area. He is the spiritual leader, and they call on him, and they said, it is time for us to worship. It's time for us to learn. It's time for us to teach. And so he built, brought them back, um, and he was also responsible for the beginning of the building of the temple. And it says they brought the book of the law of Moses, and this is what the Jews had at this time as their holy book. You and I would now call it the Torah, T-O-R-A-H. And it's the first books of the Bible, the first five books of our now Christian Bible was being studied then. And so Ezra opened up God's word, and he talked to them about the story of creation. And he taught them about the faith of Noah. He taught them about the covenant made between Abraham and his seed with God. And then, and then he taught them from Exodus about how God had rescued the Jews from slavery out of Exodus. He moved on into Leviticus and, and taught them about um, the, the laws and the commands that God had given. And so this entire morning for, for a long time, they're sitting out here learning and they're attentive. And, and that's one of the things the Bible tells us is they were attentive to this for at least six to eight hours. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I see your faces. When we start clicking that clock over on 12.01 on a Sunday morning, I see you looking at your watches. I know what you're talking about. Isn't it amazing that after this big accomplishment that these people stood in the streets and listened to a priest read the Bible for six to eight hours? Their legs hurt. Their tummies rumbled. But they stood there. Why? Why is it that this victory of, of bringing these walls together got people to want to come 
and learn about God is because when we have victory in Christ, it should cause us to want to be more devoted to him. When we experience his goodness, it should want us to want more of him. And these people had experienced his goodness in seeing the walls built and now they wanted to know a little bit more about him. Now look at the order of the story up to this point. For, for Nehemiah, there has been a burden for God's city. He goes there and he leads people to this victory. And then he gathers them for worship for the sake of teaching them. There's a very clear order of what Nehemiah is doing. We're going to do something big for God. We're going to worship God. And then we're going to learn about God. Because it, it, the story doesn't end when the walls are built. There's still more to do to revive this city. For us, we have to have that same mentality among us. First, it starts with a burden for our community. I, I don't mean that we need to say we want to lead our community to Christ. I, I don't mean that we need to say we want to revive our city. We need to have a burden on our hearts that there are people literally in the shadow of this church building that know, don't know Jesus Christ. They're not coming in the doors just because we open them. And that's not what God commanded us to do. He commanded us to go out and reach those people. If we don't start with a burden, if we don't start with looking at our community and our society and saying, I see the hurt, I see the brokenness, and I need to shine God's light into it, the rest of the story matters little to us. It starts with a burden. But we've got to learn to do that, to have that burden. And then the next step is leading people to Christ. Isn't that the most amazing feeling? Some of you have got to lead your, your children and your grandchildren to Christ. You've seen baptisms in this church. There is nothing better than seeing somebody come to Christ, especially when you have a hand in it. Not that we get to save anybody, but isn't it special to think, God, God, you used me to lead that person to eternity with you. So many times we get to that high moment and we celebrate and then we say, okay, now um, do right. We, we expect somebody when they become saved and they become a Christian to automatically know everything to do. But that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about teaching. And Paul says at first people have to have the milk. And then they can get to solid food. I'm going, I'm going to refrain from baby stories this morning. But that, you can imagine where my mind went with that. First, first, you have to feed people milk. You have to slowly start bringing them around before you can give them the, the more advanced parts of the scripture. A lot of times, Christians have failed at this. We say, you're saved, you're going to heaven, act right. But God has commanded us to be teachers. And you're saying, well, Brian, you're the pastor of the church. You're preaching. You're the teacher. Well, I am one of the teachers. You want to know who else is the teachers of this church? Every single Christian that knows anything about God. If that's you, you can point at yourself and say, oh, I'm the teacher. Well, maybe that's not my talent. Maybe I don't teach kids, uh, two-year-olds. Maybe I don't teach teenagers. Maybe I don't teach adults. But you can still teach individuals that you make relationships with. We have got to focus on teaching others because God's kingdom is built on training others, on imperfect people, training younger Christians and moving them to. Paul compared Christianity to a race. Paul, when he talks about this, he talks about running the good race and, and, and continually talks about we've got this, this long, hard journey in front of us. And when I think of a race, I think of like the Olympics or a track meet. You guys ever watched the Summer Olympics? Man, those guys are fast. The, the people who impress me, they, they don't get a lot of attention. The people who impress me are not the short distance runners. Some of these sprinters can run 100 yards in less than nine seconds. And that's amazing to me because I can't run 100 yards without dying. So 
it's amazing. And those people get all the attention. Oh, it's got to be the world's fastest man to run that far that quick. But the people that impress me about the Olympics and the track meets are not the people who run the short distances fast. It's the people who run the long distances and don't stop. See, when Paul talks about the Christian life being a race, he's not talking about a quick sprint. It's a marathon. It's something that is continual. It is a long-term, um, a long-term service to God and a long-term growing experience. When I was in high school, we had a track meet at school, and I wasn't in track, but I had some friends that were, and so we had convinced our teachers that we really, really want to support our friends at the track meet, and they're out there. We need to go cheer them on, and we need to not do any homework today is really what it came down to. And so we got to go sit out there, and we were hanging out with our friends, and it got time for the distance running. And, and one of the guys in my grade, he was very athletic, star basketball player. His name was Cameron. He was out there, and it was his turn to run, and he was going to run. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was long, long, long run race and we're like man Cameron has got this he's the quickest person I've ever seen and sure enough when they let him go they all take off running and Cameron is out in front and after the first lap Cameron's a quarter of a lap ahead and after the second lap uh, he's a half a lap ahead we're like nobody is gonna catch Cameron he is too fast but as the race wore on we noticed that Cameron had done really good about getting himself out front but he was starting to run out of steam he hadn't prepared for the long journey. He had spent all of his energy at first, and he ended up coming actually in the back of the pack. Because as those other runners stayed at the same steady pace, he had slowed down from sprinting to running to jogging to walking very quickly. He ended up losing the race because he was trying to sprint and run instead of run a marathon. The Christian race is much like a marathon. And if you think about what it takes to run a marathon, what it takes to run a, a, a race like that, it doesn't just happen. If you can go out of this building right now and run down to Walmart and back without stopping, you're doing way better than me. Can anybody do that? Not a single person raised their hands. Did you know that there are people, and, and um, they, have a, they have a term for these people that, that run marathons and they train. What, what's the term? Oh, crazy people. Crazy people. They go out and they run these marathons 13 miles or 26 miles for fun. They're crazy. And if you run marathons, I have much respect for you because I'm not going to do it with you. But it doesn't happen by just deciding I'm gonna go out and run 13 miles today. They have to step out of their house and they have to say, today I'm gonna to run a quarter mile. And the next day I'm gonna run a half a mile. And when they get to where they can do that, they have to work themselves up and train to run this marathon. And our job as a church, our job as individuals is to be training together for this marathon that is the Christian life. It takes effort every single day to be able to do that. It takes time and building. Now, with this teaching, details interest me in the Bible. What, what details did the Bible tell us about how they taught the word? You can tell this is important. It gets in the Bible that Nehemiah had this big, basically, church meeting. What'd they do? Well, it tells us a couple things about how they taught, and I think it's really interesting what God put in here. Number one, they taught practically. I love these weird details in here. The Bible makes a good point out of saying they took Ezra and they built him a, it says a pulpit, they built him a stage to stand on. That seems like a little detail to you and me, but it was a big detail to God because he had it recorded in his Bible. And so they put him up on a stage, not because he was above everybody as far as being better or not because he needed extra respect. They put him on a stage very simply. We wanted to put the guy with the word of God in a position where people could see and hear him 
easily. And it mentions it again. It talks about him reading it and everybody listened because he was above everybody. God made it very clear that this was an ease of access for people to be able to learn God's word. And we can learn from this that our job is that we should be teaching the word of God as practically as possible. For, for a long time, Christians have wanted to make it difficult to learn the Word of God. And you say, well, Brian, who would do that? Who, who, would, who would say, I want to make it hard? It's not that anybody wants to make it hard. It's that they put all these extra things in front of teaching the Word of God. As a church, our number one priority, whether it's in Sunday school, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, is getting the Word of God into people's hearts. Not the traditions that get us there. Not personal preference but making it easy for people to come learn and understand. And this is the other thing you see, is not only did they hear the word of God, there was an emphasis on understanding. I read off a list of names that nobody can pronounce of people, and their job was to circulate around the crowd. And while Ezra was preaching, or while Ezra was teaching, their job was to make sure that people understood. Their job was to walk up to people and explain what it meant to translate if needed be so these people could understand. There was this laser-like focus on making sure not only did people come to the meeting, but the people understood what they were learning when they left. See, the Word of God is meant to be applied. It's meant to be understood. Our number one priority as a church has to make, be that we make sure that people understand with every tool available to us. And once again, this went on for six hours. Why would you stand here for six hours? Standing in the streets. I thought we might practice that today and just go ahead and preach all through the afternoon. You guys ready for that? Yeah, some of you guys are like, I'm gonna go home. I don't care if you are. Thank you, Miss Donna, for being honest back there. I appreciate that. We're not gonna do that. They were hungry for the word of God in this moment of victory. And what causes us to keep from being hungry for the word of God? I had an interesting experience this week. Of course, um, slightly sleep deprived if I seem like I'm rambling there's a reason for it I'm slightly sleep deprived and I went back to work this way and gone are the spring days of two weeks ago did you guys notice it was like 70 degrees and sunny there for a whole week and then all of a sudden we're back to like winter again it's 45 and raining I, I was walking out of the house I'm not a very kind person in the morning anyway I don't communicate and I'm grumpy and I'm walking out of the house and it's dark and it's foggy and I'm getting ready to go to work and I just not in a good mood I hadn't had my caffeine yet and something caught my attention that I have never seen before and God caused me to pause like an idiot standing beside my truck early in the morning and just think about this as I walked out the door I noticed that there's a new I think it's a cell phone tower right over there new cell phone tower just it's, it's right in my front yard and I knew it was there and I noticed it when they built it but I had never noticed it in the morning but this particular morning that little flashing light on the top of the tower was lighting up the whole sky I'd never noticed it before. I've been out there when it was dark, but it was never anything I noticed. And, and here's what God caused me to realize that morning. That light shined brighter because it was darker. Because the weather was horrible, the fog caused that light to, to reflect. And, and, and there was this brightness, not because it was easy to see the world around you, but because it was something bright in the darkness. And see, the word of God... When we find ourselves in times of darkness, it's when it shines the brightest. Did you know that the Bible refers to itself as a flashlight? It's my favorite thing to think of. This is what it says in Psalm. It says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. This is meant to illuminate the darkness. And the darker the world around us is, the brighter God's people and the word of God and the message of God will shine in the darkness.
These people had been through a lot of darkness. For 150 years, they had sat in a city with no protection, or the city had had no protection around it. They had experienced victory in a time when there seemed to be no victory, when God's people were seeming to turn away from him. It seemed like nothing was going right. They were interested because it shines so brightly in the darkness. I, I don't know if you guys have noticed our world outside. It's getting darker by the day. It's getting darker as people panic about viruses. It's getting darker as people turn away from even the most basic senses of godly morality. Every day our world gets darker, and you know what that means? It's not something to be scared of. We hope that it turns around. We pray that it turns around. But all that means is that the message we have to take to the world is gonna shine more brightly. And our world is gonna be more hungry to hear about a Savior who loves them as they try to traverse the world in darkness. We have a blessing in front of us that God is going to give us the opportunity in the coming days, weeks, and years to witness to people who would not have heard the message of the gospel 10 and 15 years ago. But in the darkness, they're gonna be attracted to the light. Just like the Israel, or just like the Jews were here. Uh, let's continue reading here, verses nine through 13. Nehemiah has them all teaching. Let's see how they respond to it. And Nehemiah, which is the uh, Tersh Tershatha, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them of whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their ways to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they that understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. Take home truth number two is that devotion to God will bring conviction. Devotion to God will bring conviction. Now look at this. We have this picture of everybody sitting out here in this giant worship service. They're learning together. They're hearing the word together. The light is shining in the darkness. And what does it cause them to do? It says that they're all crying. They're all weeping. And that's a proper, that's a proper reaction to the word of God. See, this, this book, it shines a light in the darkness, but it will also shine a light on yours and my failures. That, that's what this is for. We're to read this and understand, I messed that up or I'm not doing this well enough. And it's supposed to bring something we call conviction. And conviction should cause us to change. As a matter of fact, I would say this, if, if you have made a, a commitment to Christ and you are not changing, you can't pick a place in your life and go back and see, say, I see how God has changed and worked in my life since then. I would say that we probably need to sit down and, and ask ourselves if you've really made that commitment to God. You cannot come in contact with the grace of God. You cannot come in contact with, with the, the word of God and not be changed if God is working in you. It's not possible. God will not let you stay the same. And these people, hearing the word of God in this moment of victory, this heaviness fell on them, and we have failed it so much, and we have forgotten so much. We, we've not done what we've been called to do. And they were so heavy with the guilt of that that they were sitting there crying. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever made a mistake, and you carried that heaviness around with you, and it caused you to, to be sad or depressed, to, to get down on yourself? 
Listen to me. Conviction is a correct response to God's word, but defeatism is not. When something weighs on you again and again and again and you've prayed about it and you've asked for forgiveness of it, that is not God coming back to remind you of that. That's a defeatist uh, mentality that I really believe is spiritual. It comes from Satan. And listen to what the, the, the Levites and the priests said to them. They said, this, they said, don't cry. This isn't how you respond to God. It's good that you're convicted. It's good that you realize that you failed, but you don't respond by crying and weeping about it. Instead, they said, why don't you guys go have a feast? Eat the good stuff. Drink the good wine. Go and celebrate. How do you celebrate failure? How is it that, that with this heaviness on us, this conviction of everything that we've messed up, this conviction of all the things we've done wrong, how is it that the people who are leading God tell them to go celebrate? This is what they tell them. They said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He said, this is how you celebrate in the heaviness of failure. In your failures, you need to remember God. You need to remember two things about God. You need to remember who he is, that he is perfect and holy, and you need to remember his goodness and that he loves you completely no matter what you've done and in the light of that message doesn't that change everything there's nothing that you can do have done will do that will separate you from the love of Christ there is no God sitting in heaven who looks down on you and goes, oh Brian I can't believe you did that again you big dummy I can't I wish I had never made you our God has never said that about any individual in the world He's never, well, he's never said that about us. How about that? He, he, he loves us completely, no matter what. I, I was thinking about this. What does it mean that, that understanding and having the joy of the Lord and knowing who he is and leaning on his goodness, how is that a strength? Well, what does it mean, strength? And I started thinking about the word of strength. Why does it tell us that the joy of the Lord is our strength and this is something we can rely on? And so I started thinking, what does it mean to have a strength? How do you get strength, and, and what does it do for you? Well, I remembered back to college. My buddy and I went to college, and we were majoring in um, girls, to be honest with you. And we went to college, and we were, had this opinion that we're going to go, we're going to be the best-looking guys on campus, and we're going to find, like, 20 girlfriends apiece. That, that was our opinion. And so we go off to college, and we realize all these pretty girls walking around want nothing to do with us. I have no clue why. I mean, we were obviously, or me. I don't know about him. He's kind of ugly. I'm pretty good-looking. We go up there and we realize this. And so we realize something that, that we're not the best looking, we're not the best built. And so we started this regiment of going to the gym every single day. Seven o'clock every night, we went to the gym and we picked up heavy things. Now, as time went on, I weighed a, I weighed a uh, whopping 132 pounds soaking wet. And I'm in there with five pound weights lifting them like this, trying to get stronger. But I realized after a couple of weeks, I moved up to the 10 pound weights. And then the 12 and a half pound weights. I couldn't get to 15 pounds. But I moved up a little bit. I realized something about strength is that when you use your strength and you exercise your strength, that you get stronger in something. So strength is something that comes from practice. But I also realized that you didn't realize your strength until a time of difficulty. See, strength is something you use when you need to strain to do something. When it's harder than your ability is when you use your strength. Picking up something light means nothing. Picking up something heavy is when you use your actual strength. And so what I've learned from this, this, this understanding of strength, is that this is something as Christians we need to practice. We need to exercise our understanding of God. We need to exercise our joy of the Lord and knowing who he is because there will come difficult times in our lives. Have you ever experienced a difficult time as a Christian? 
And it's only in those times of difficulty that we can actually exercise and use this strength and, and, and rely on who God is, the fact that he always loves us, that he died for us. As a matter of fact, in times of failure is when we will find the most joy in God. Have you ever thought about that? In the hardest times of your life is when you were the closest to God. Can you look back at a time and tell me that that's true? Is that in this time of complete dependence or uh, complete failure in my life, I was dependent on God. The Bible tells us this about this, is about our failures. It says that God's strength, his strength is perfected in our weaknesses. It's when we are weak and when we fail that his strength is perfected. And this understanding changed these people. It changed the life of the people that were there. They went from weeping to rejoicing. They went from crying to feasting. And it has that same effect on you and me when we feel like failures, when we feel like we can't do enough, when the word of God convicts us and we, and we think, oh my goodness, what kind of person must I be? It's simply realizing the goodness of God and we can go to him and say, Lord, I know I'm a failure today, but I celebrate that you still love me no matter what. This will change our life. And so what we find from the story is that conviction, while we may think it's a reason to mourn, conviction is a reason to celebrate. Let's continue reading the story. We're going to read the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 14. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the court of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read the book of the law of, the God, of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Take home truth number three, is that conviction should bring dependence on God. Conviction should bring dependence on God. Listen to what happens. They're, they're reading this book, this book of rules, this book of laws, and they're realizing how much they failed, and they're having to adjust their attitudes and how they respond to that from being sad to, to just rejoicing in the goodness of God, that even in their failures, God had grace for them. And as they're coming through this, we see them strengthening their obedience. They come across a festival that hasn't, it's in the book, of the, it's in the book, it's in Leviticus 23, that has not been practiced for years and years and years and years. And they say, wait, it's the right time. It's coming up this week. And so they decide to celebrate this festival. It was kind of a divine appointment, I believe. They decide to celebrate this festival. And it's called the Festival of Booths. You saw that, that word in there a lot. Um, in Leviticus, it calls it the Festival of Tabernacle in our English translations. Booths is actually more um, accurate of a way to put it. And, and this is what it is. This is the seventh month, which is harvest time. It's a time of plenty when the Israelites and the Jews, they, they have everything they need. And immediately after they finished harvest, God had demanded that you have a feast, a time of celebration. There will never be as much food as there is at harvest time because you take away from that supply. 
So for seven days, they have feasts, they have food, they have celebrations, they have worship, they sacrifice to God. They do all of these things with all of this extra, and then this is what God has commanded them to do. He says, go out and get branches from trees. Go out and get palm leaves. Go out and get branches and make yourself a temporary shelter out in the middle of the street. It's like a tiki hut. If you ever go to the beach or somewhere tropical, you see the, the, the huts with the palm branches on top of them. That's, that's what they were making. And for seven days, they celebrated feasting, but they would sleep and eat in these, it's called booths. I would call it a hut in our language, in good old Arkansas talk. That doesn't seem to really mix, does it? We have a time of celebration where we have an abundance of food. We're going to sit over here and eat all of our food, celebrate, eat too much, just like you and I do at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then we're going to leave our nice, comfortable houses, and we're going to sleep in a homemade shelter out in the streets. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? God had put this in God had put this in the law for a reason. Leviticus 23 tells us that this is a reminder of Exodus. See, this was a reminder that the, that the Jews had always been dependent upon God. And so in a time of plenty, he said, I want you to remember back. Remember when you were slaves in captivity in Egypt. And I sent Moses to lead you out of captivity. And I sent 10 plagues to get the Pharaoh to release you. And you went out and you had to wander around a desert for 40 years. And you made these homemade shelters for protection. Do you remember where your food came from? Your food came from God, manna from heaven. So this is your time of remembering that everything you have is given to you because of God. And so in this time of plenty, God had put in his word that there is a time to remember that, yes, you have plenty now, but you have plenty because I gave it to you. God says, you depend on me, I am your provider. So, so let's look at the whole chapter here. Here's what we've got. A victory, uh, uh, victory in Jesus, you might say. A victory of God leads to devotion to God. Devotion to God leads to conviction. Conviction leads to celebration. And celebration leads to dependence. And I want to ask you a question as we get ready to close down. Where are you at on that scale? Where are you at when it comes to your personal marathon? Are, are you at the point where you realize your complete dependence on God daily? Are you at the point where, where maybe you've had victory in God, you, you have accepted him as your savior, but, but you haven't quite got devoted yet? Are we in a place where maybe we, we got the devotion part down, but it hasn't led to conviction? It's just become commonplace. It's like, yeah, I go to church, but I never get anything out of it. Yeah, I read my Bible, but it never causes me to change. Are you at a place where maybe you've been hit by conviction, but you forget to celebrate the goodness of God. I want to ask you a question. What is the hardest time in your life? You don't have to tell me, but everybody in here has a hardest time of their life. How did you handle that? And as you look back on it, do you re remember in that time how you prayed to God? In that time how you begged God for something and how you depended on him wholly because you had no other choice? And here's the question that we all need to answer this morning. Are you living that way today with that same level of dependence as you did in your hardest moment?